At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. This is The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans, and we have record highs again today for the NASDAQ and the S&P 500. The Dow is about 100 points away, and energy has been leading the way this year. We have a name you can still buy at a discount and a vice stock worth picking up despite the ESG push. And the billionaire space race. Richard Branson goes, Jeff Bezos is next, and Elon Musk buying his ticket. So why is Virgin Galactic selling more stock? Plus, TikTok says don't talk about crypto while its parent company backs away from an IPO. And while billionaires are racing to space, two grill rivals are racing to go public. It's all ahead in rapid fire. But we start with the record highs. Dom Chu is here with those numbers. Dom? I love me some grilling, uh, Kelly, just like I know you and your family does during this (laughs) summer season. Things are heating up in the market right now because, like you said, I get to draw those yellow gold stars here right for the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq, because like you pointed out, both of those hit record intraday highs in trading so far today. We're less than a percent away in the Dow Industrials, but still 100 percent or 100 point gain there. Ten points to the upside for the S&P and the Nasdaq up about two points. The laggard on the day so far. The key focus for many traders entering this earnings season and every earnings season, let's be fair, is the financial sector trade. And those banks are a key focus right now, especially with 10-year note yields holding steady, trying to find some footing right around this level here, about 1.3%. It's currently about 1.38% right now, the lowest level since the spring. And that bank trade is going to come into real, real, real focus here in the next couple of days because on an intraday basis, we are seeing a rally. The best performing sector so far in today's trade has been the financials, as you might expect, a little bit more activity there ahead of the earnings season. J.P. Morgan Chase up 2%, bumping up right against its 50-day average price. Bank of America up nearly 2%. Citigroup up 1%. And Goldman Sachs up 3% as well. I would put Morgan Stanley up there too. But remember, these four stocks all report in the next two days. So certainly a lot of catalyst activity on that financial front. Kelly, I'll send things back over to you. Are you a Weber or a Traeger guy, Dom? Uh, So I will say this. We have personally in our household, we are a Weber household, four burners, or the three big burners and a searing station with the stove on the side. It's been probably one of the best used things we've bought in our house. All right, you know what you're doing. You can come over anytime. I'm, I'll bring the tenderloins. How about yeah. that? <laughs> bring your skills. Just bring the skills. Right. Dom, thank you, you Dom Chu. Speaking of energy, in a way, it has been the best performing sector so far this year, despite or is it because of the rise of ESG investing? My next guest says there's still room to run. He names Philip 66, one of his top plays on the broader cyclical recovery. He also sees big potential for the dirty stock of yesteryear, Altria, which is now much more than a tobacco play. Joining me now is Dan Genter. He's RNC Genter Capital Management's president. Dan, it's great to have you back. Is it just a coincidence these are kind of anti-ESG trades? Well, I think it's a little bit of a coincidence right now because I think, Kelly, what we're really looking at is you're, you're looking at companies that are undervalued, that have very strong earnings momentum, and, and ones that are going to generate a very high yield while you wait. I mean, if you look at Phillips that you alluded to, is that you know, Phillips is at a point where the stock is still down about 20%. 
And yet overall demand for energy is only down about 10 percent from pre-pandemic levels. And so you have a a stock that is clearly undervalued. About uh, 66 percent of their overall revenue is really coming from upstream, from refining and from storage. I mean, they're at a level right now. They're trading at about a 12 P.E. And yet it has a 4.4 percent yield. So to me, it's a way to play on the energy side. It's certainly one of the most undervalued names that you have in the energy complex. And yet you have a significant amount of upside with a a lot of certainty. It's undervalued and and you get almost 5 percent while you wait. So I think it's just a, it's a good sound value. And, and along with that same yield trade, if you will, as this market potentially stalls out here is Altria. Hmm. I mean, it's one, it's one of the sin stocks, um, but it's trading at a 10 PE. It has, it has 10% free cash flow, and it's currently paying us a, a 7.3% dividend yield. So you're gonna get a 7% return with a 30% premium of fee, uh, free cash flow over that. And, and while you wait this out, well, and by the way, Eltria has been a great investment for the past 20 years, while right. you know pension funds like CalPERS have divested from it. And you have to wonder if a similar phenomenon plays out now across the energy space. Eltria is not just cigarettes either. They've diversified. They have 10 to 15 percent of their income from beer and wine business stakes. You think they could be a player in the cannabis market and so forth. But let's go back to what you said about this all being kind of a, a yield play, maybe a cyclical recovery play. Tell me about that. I mean, what do you think when you wake up and see the 10-year yield parked at 1.35 percent? Well, look, I think you're in a situation where we have a market that's being largely driven by three things right now. And that number one is that there's a tremendous amount of liquidity. And you know, we have to realize that the, the Fed has put $4 trillion of assets in the market in the last 15 months. And even if they do nothing, there's another trillion that's going to come in in the next year. So there's a lot of money that's chasing a lot of areas. A lot of that's going to come into the market. And in essence, from consumers and investors, there really isn't a lot of alternatives and places for them to go. And certainly the sentiment is being buoyed up by very, very strong earnings. And we're going to have good earnings again this week. I mean, we're likely to see this quarter be over 50 for the S&P. And we're going to be at a over 200 in the S&P run rate. So people are going to continue to gravitate to this market. I think when you're seeing what's happening with, with overall interest, I mean, look, the Fed is going to continue to issue paper. You're seeing a demand for it. And that liquidity is going to drive this market, though we think the earnings as we go forward for the second half of the year are really going to be the the overall driver of this market. It is going to be hard, I think, to move forward with higher PEs. So earnings are really what we're very focused on, and we think we'll start off a good week this week. Yeah, well, Philip 66, you mentioned Altria. You also like Lincoln Natural uh, National, I'm sorry, uh, which is more obviously a yield play. So, Dan, we appreciate it. Dan Genter of RNC Genter joining us today. Speaking of bond yields, let's talk about what happened with the 10-year auction that just took place. Rick Santelli standing by with the results. How'd it go, Rick? Uh, well, the grade I gave it, it's straight up one Eastern for investor demand, Kelly, was a B plus, boy plus. Pretty good auction. Let's go through it, shall we? $38 billion reopened tens. This is the second time we're adding to an issue. Originally opened in May at $41 billion. The reopenings tend to be smaller at $38 billion. The yield, $1.371. And that's pretty much right where the one issued market was trading. So it priced well. And if you look at the bid to cover all the internals, they were at or better than 10 auction averages. And I like to pay attention to that indirect bidder, as I know you do too, Kelly. Indirect bidders at 63.5 is very solid, represents, of course, foreign interests. All in all, this is the second auction today, and we know the Fed will come in and buy about 54% of all the paper we issue, so there's going to be demand. 
times two as far as interest rates. Pay very close attention to the zone of 136 to 138. Should we get above or below it? Look for a little bit of acceleration in the direction it trades. Back to you. More than 54% of the new issue is still astonishing to think about. That's what the Fed's doing. Rick, again, thanks for bringing us those auction results. The 10-year trading around 1.37% uh, in the aftermath of it. Let's turn now to the big global money news of the day. G20's financial leaders agreeing on a blueprint to overhaul the international tax structure over the weekend. The new pact would establish a global minimum tax rate of 15% for corporations. It carries major implications for tech titans like Amazon and Apple. The tax is based on where products and services are sold in certain cases instead of where a company is headquartered. World leaders are expected to approve the plan at the G20 summit in October, but critics warn they could face some difficult hurdles, especially here in the U.S. For more, let's bring in Dan Clifton. He's head of policy research for Strategus Research Partners. Dan, are they going to pull this off, and is this really all just about raising U.S. taxes and making sure the money doesn't leak abroad? Yeah, there's a couple of factors going on here, Kelly. And, and first, what I would argue is that Treasury Secretary Yellen has made tremendous progress in moving the ball forward on some sort of global tax agreement. If you remember when this process started, people would say, why would other countries agree to raise their own taxes? And she's slowly making progress, but we're not there yet. I think when you get into the details of what the uh, agreement was uh, reached with the OECD, you see that there's still some holes in the rate and the base, and those issues are gonna have to be worked out over the next couple of months. So why but would- why are we having this conversation? Yeah. First, Joe Biden wants to raise taxes on U.S. multinational income. They're very worried about raising taxes on the U.S. and taxes uh, outside the U.S. not going up at the same time. So they want a proportional shift. And second, to your point in the opening about tech companies, tech companies are being hit with discriminatory taxes called digital service taxes. This is a negotiation to create a new global windfall profits tax on companies uh, that would based on where they're located. So there's two different taxes there. One is a windfall profit tax, the other is a global minimum tax, and it is very much integrated into the negotiations with the U.S. on corporate tax reform that you'll see Congress debating over the next few months. Well, and I'm sure there's got to be something in it for these other countries to agree to go along with it and maybe saying, you know, they'll pay tax based on where they sell and not just where they're headquartered as part of that handout. But reading through the structure reminds me a little bit of the founding of this country. I'm not kidding, because you have kind of the Senate and the House of Representatives. You have one area where people have a proportional representation. You have one area uh, where it's not proportional, where it's more just based on financial heft. Let's boil this down to investors. If I own Amazon, the big tech companies, you name it, are they going to face significantly different taxes going forward? Yeah, at the first, uh, you're going to get a higher corporate tax rate as part of the Biden tax plan, separate from all of this, and higher taxes on multinational income as part of the Biden tax plan. Those two provisions will cut S&P 500 earnings next year from about 11% to 5.5%. So wow. that's a pretty significant cut, and that's on the compromise plan. And then you get to look at what the global tax agreement is going to be. And it's not just tech. We think Johnson & Johnson are going to be affected by this. We think it's a much broader set of tax increases, and it will be taxes largely on U.S. companies that are then being paid to foreign governments. About 62% of all companies impacted will be U.S. companies. 38% from other countries. So this is a really significant change. It will change corporate taxes. You can argue whether it's going to be good or bad, but to your point, it should lower earnings 
all else being equal, if Treasury Secretary Yellen is successful, I just both about domestically cut them in half. and internationally. So I guess my final What's question, that? it was just about cut those earnings in half based on what you were saying for yeah. next year. So is yeah. there some approval required by Congress? Do you expect any pushback in the U.S.? And what about elsewhere? I mean, we've talked about some of the holdout countries, whether it was Ireland. I think Hungary was one of them. What's the status? Yeah. Yeah, so this is the big risk here. The U.S. wants to go first on the global minimum tax, could be likely included as part of the Biden tax plan this fall, uh, and the U.S. would then impose it, but then other countries wouldn't act first. So Congress is going to want more assurance that other countries are definitely going to act on this. The windfall profits tax, which is this kind of tax on large companies, Jared Yellen is saying that that won't be ready until 2022. That is a much bigger hurdle in Congress, Kelly. That is a change in tax treaties that will require 67 votes in the United States Senate. That means you're going to need at least 15 or 16 Republicans to be able to pass that through. And that's going to be a much tougher slog to go through. And I got to tell you, the, the European countries don't want to do the global minimum tax without the windfall profits tax. So there's a lot of moving parts here. It's very complicated. Uh, and and the administration really needs everything to go right to be successful. I understand it a little better now, thanks to your explanation, Dan. I appreciate you following it for us and helping investors uh, understand it as well. Dan Clifton, appreciate your time today. Great. Thank you, Kelly. Appreciate being here. He's with Strategus. Coming up, Virgin Galactic founder Sir Richard Branson successfully riding into space, but shares of the company taking a swoon today after they filed a sell up to half a billion dollars in stock. We'll look at why they need the extra capital now. And after hiatus last year, CNBC's Top States for Business is back. How the pandemic has changed criteria and another hint about the winning location. It's all coming up after this quick break. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Virgin Galactic is celebrating the success of its fourth spaceflight test. This one, of course, included founder Richard Branson as a passenger. But shares of the company are sliding today after they announced plans to sell up to a, a half a billion dollars in stocks. Space is down about 15 percent right now. Morgan Brennan joins us now with all the very latest this hour. Hi, Morgan. Hi, Kelly. That's right. So this was a major milestone for commercial space after Virgin Galactic successfully completed its first fully crewed flight to the edge of space yesterday. Now, post-flight, I asked founder Sir Richard Branson, for whom this has been a lifelong dream, whether he will make it again. I would love to go this afternoon if I, if, if, <laughs> I, if, if, I uh, if, if the opportunity arose. But I, now, as a a, a proper citizen of Virgin Galactic. Must, we've got hundreds of people who've signed up to go to space. They, they need to take all the seats, um, and um, uh, and I will come and bid them bid them bid them a wonderful voyage like I've, we've had. 
Now, speaking of those ticket holders, of which there's currently 600, 60 of them were actually what they call, the company calls future astronauts, were on site for this flight yesterday. I spoke to several of them who told me it was a very emotional day for them as well. I'd also just note Elon Musk is one of those 600 ticket holders. Uh, we found that out over the weekend, too. But for investors, the focus now and for Wall Street, the sites are really set on the next round of tickets as we get ready to see those sales reopened. Now, I spoke to Virgin Galactic CEO Michael Colglazier. He told me pending the full analysis of yesterday's flight, an analysis that is happening here at Spaceport behind me, that Galactic is still on track to open those reservations later this summer after its next space flight, which is expected in the coming weeks. In all, you're going to see two more test flights uh, over the coming weeks and coming months by, er by the beginning of early fall. If all goes according to plan, then commercial service will finally launch early next year. In the meantime, you just mentioned, Kelly, take a look at the shares of Virgin Galactic. I mean, talk about a rocket ship coming into this flight. Uh, they, they ran up pretty dramatically over the last couple of weeks, but today really coming back down to earth, a dramatic plunge down something like 14% right now after the company did announce this morning that it will sell up to $500 million in stock. I think the bottom line here, space is hard. This is a long time industry saying, but you can argue that space investing is hard, at least right now as well. And when you're talking about a name like Virgin Galactic, as we are seeing, it is a volatile stock because it is pre-revenue. I have so many different questions, Morgan. I don't think I have time for any of them, but here they are. I'll, I'll rattle, rattle them all <laughs> off. Um, I guess the first is, why do they need to sell you know, this capital now? Why not just sell shares in future space flights? Maybe that won't raise quite half a billion dollars, but it could, it could raise a decent amount. Also, I find it kind of striking, and this is a, a dumb question, I, I will admit, but that all of this is taking place in the U.S. You know, Sir Richard Branson is a, is a British hero, right? And it's just here, and you're in New Mexico. I mean, I don't know if you see Scott Cohn over there. I don't know if they're going to be a top state for business this year, but this certainly can't hurt. <laughs> yeah, so in, in terms of New Mexico, this is Spaceport America behind me. It was the first fully designed, full purpose, completely focused on space uh, project, uh, I believe, in the world. And it was a nearly $250 million project that was funded by taxpayers here in the state of New Mexico, a huge multi-year bet going back to 2005 on space tourism. I will tell you, I spoke to the governor of New Mexico yesterday, Michelle Lujan Grisham, and she says that she sees this as a major future pillar of economic growth, something that could be something like billions of dollars for New Mexico in the coming years. That being said, this is just one spaceport. Longer term, Virgin Galactic is looking to roll out a major fleet of spaceships and have spaceports all over the world to be doing these flights much more regularly. Yeah. All right, Morgan, thank you. Uh, it's very, very cool All that stuff. takes money. Yeah, I know, <laughs> absolutely. A lot of capital. Morgan Brennan following this flight for us. Yeah. Let's bring in Ron Epstein now. He's an analyst at Bank of America Securities. He doubled downgraded Virgin Galactic to underperform on June 30th. Holding his price target at $41, we're just about that. Uh, the stock is down 10% in the past month. It's still more than doubled over the past year. And Ron, it's good to have you. So is this kind of basically a buy the rumor, sell the fat kind of move? Yeah, yeah. Good afternoon. Good to see you. Yeah, I think I think that's part of what's going on. Um, you know, several several things, right? I mean, the, the the capital raise I think um, came as a little bit of a surprise, although the company did say they'd be opportunistic on, on such things. Uh, and then and then also, you know, one of the things we like to highlight is uh, they're not going to be cash flow positive, at least you know free cash flow positive until at least twenty twenty five. 
So when you look at the move of the shares that they had into this, you know, they like they kind of went galactic, right? And that that more than discounted in uh, the the you know the optimism around this flight and also potential future growth. So I, I don't mean to diminish at all anything they did this past weekend. It's you know, a remarkable, wonderful achievement, uh, but the shares were more than reflecting that. Well, so they're four years away from generating positive free cash flow, let alone consistent earnings. I mean, they would be insane not to be public. If investors are going to hand them capital in that kind of outlook, then why not? Why not take it, right? What, what, it reminds me a little bit of the Tesla story. What are they going to do with this capital? How does that change their trajectory for space flight and space tourism? Yeah, so there's there's a couple things they, they could do with it, right? I mean, there's investments they have to make in other spaceports. That's not an expensive building that infrastructure. There's building out the, uh, the the fleet of spaceships that they'd like to do. And then, honestly, where the big money is, when you think about the commercial space market, you know, commercial space isn't just space tourism, but commercial space is also uh, building out space infrastructure, meaning satellites, launch, satellite services, all, all kinds of stuff. Point to point travel. So, one of the things that Virgin Galactic has talked about in the past is not just taking a ride into space, but actually using space as, if you will, the, the, the tunnel to go someplace else, right? So, just imagine in the early days of aviation, you could go for a flight in an airplane, that's fun. But in the end, the real money was taking the airplane going from point A to point B. And, and ultimately, that's probably where the real big money is in this market. It's fascinating. Rana, final thought on this. Blue Origin going public. I mean, other names in this space to watch. It's not I'm not saying that you're a venture capital guy, but, you know, what do you think in terms of future competition for investors capital? Yeah. So it's a fantastic question. If you you think about what's going on in commercial space, it's a it's a it's a a, a fantastic area of innovation today. So across the spectrum, there's a company I'll just name a few Black Sky, Astra, Rocket Labs, Redwire, AST, Spire Global. And then there's the big guys people have talked about SpaceX uh, uh, and Blue Origin. So I, I think, you know, within a, a, a relatively short period of time called 12 to 24 months, we're going to have a whole new coverage universe of commercial space companies, which Virgin Galactic was really the pioneer. They were the first one, but there's a lot more coming. Yeah. As Tesla showed, you can maintain your first mover advantage for a long time, especially with the notoriety that Richard Branson or the, or the fame, really, that he brings to uh, the marketing prowess that he brings to the table. Ron, a pleasure having you. Thank you so much today. Yeah, great to be here. Thank you. Ron Epstein from Bank of America. Coming up, TikTok's parent company, ByteDance, reportedly shelved its IPO plans after a warning from Chinese regulators amid the same cyber crackdown that has since entangled Didi. We're going to look at where this battle may be heading. And as we head to break, let's get a a quick check on the markets. The S&P 500 hitting a record high again today. The Dow near session highs up 125 points and about 100 points away from achieving a new high of its own. We're back in a moment. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back to The Exchange. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is your CNBC News update at this hour. Florida's lieutenant governor and Miami-Dade's mayor voicing their support for thousands of people protesting for freedom in Cuba and the ouster of that country's president. 
Lieutenant Governor saying that they are actively monitoring the situation in Cuba and also preparing for any, any impact on Florida. And tonight on the news, what's driving Cuba's biggest protests in decades? In South Africa, riots and looting following the arrest of the country's former president, Zuma. Six people have been killed and more than 200 arrested. Malls have been set on fire and many businesses have been looted and vandalized. In Rome, Pope Francis will be spending a few more days in the hospital. He is still recovering from colon surgery more than a week ago. The 84-year-old pontiff had been expected to be released by the end of last week. And on the West Coast, firefighters battling multiple wildfires made worse by the latest heat wave. In California, the Beckworth fire has burned nearly 90,000 acres and destroyed 20 homes in just one town alone. You're now up to date. Kelly, I'll send it back to you. Scary stuff, Rahel. Thank you. Those concerns over the COVID Delta variant are rising as the number of young Americans getting vaccinated continues to slow. Let's get to Meg Terrell with the very latest on all of the COVID news today for us. Meg? Hey, Kelly. Well, you are seeing the areas of the country with low vaccination rates, seeing uh, the most spread from Delta. And it's driving not just cases up, but also new hospital admissions now, too. This is happening in states around Missouri, Arkansas, Louisiana, Florida, a big concern now, as well as Nevada. Uh, cases overall up 30 percent week over week, now approaching 18,000 daily. You can see the red there, these areas of the highest transmission per the CDC. Uh, new daily admissions into the hospital up to 2,200 uh, a day. That's up 15% week over week as well. And as you mentioned, uh, we are starting to see more hospitalizations among younger people as vaccination rates have not been as strong there. That light blue category you see at the top is 18 to 49-year-olds uh, getting hospitalized with COVID. That's now more than 40% of the total proportion of hospitalizations, the CDC noting, as more older people are more vaccinated. If you look at the percentage of people vaccinated by age, uh, it's the older categories that have the highest rates, uh, whereas it essentially declines as you get younger, uh, down to the folks who are 18 to 24, uh, 42% fully vaccinated, Kelly. So um, there is a real concern about this and a real push uh, from health officials to try to increase these vaccination rates. Meanwhile, of course, we are talking about booster shots. Pfizer set to meet with U.S. health officials this evening. I've confirmed from two sources it's at five o'clock tonight uh, that'll discuss this data that led to the sort of dust up last week between Pfizer and the FDA and CDC over whether a booster shot is needed. That's based on Pfizer looking at data from Israel, which just over the weekend said it's going to start offering third doses of vaccines to people who are immune compromised uh, because they think they need extra protection as Delta is prevalent there. Kelly? So uh, sort of speaking of all this brouhaha, now you have the World Health Organization, I believe, saying something to the effect of vaccines should pri be prioritized for countries where they haven't had first and second rounds administered yet, as opposed to booster shots for countries that have. But is, is it really a zero-sum game? Can't we do both? Yeah, it, there were some pretty strong words from the World Health Organization today, both from the director general, their chief scientists, their folks working in the COVID um, task force, really saying that countries that are thinking about giving booster shots, they're the wealthier countries. Um, the chief scientist saying it's about four countries she's heard talking about boosters. Uh, and if you get up to 11 of the higher income countries that are talking about boosters, she estimates that would be 800 million shots you'd be using for boosters before a lot of countries in the world, lower income nations actually have access for even healthcare workers. Uh, the director general saying they've been trying to push solidarity as the main word in the pandemic. And what he is seeing, and he seemed reluctant to say it, is instead 
greed. Um, so in a lot of ways, it is a zero-sum game because when you have a limited number of doses, if you're using them for third doses or boosters, that's not going to folks who haven't been vaccinated yet. Right. No, I still just wonder if, if vaccinating or keeping the population vaccinated who's more likely to travel or spread it or what have you would be still as important maybe as reaching some of those uh, places that haven't had their first couple of rounds yet. But again, this will play out uh, for officials for the next several weeks. Meg, for now, we appreciate it. Meg Terrell with the very latest for us. Coming up, ByteDance backs away, TikTok pulls the plug, and what's cooking in the IPO world? It's all coming up in rapid fire. Before we go to break, though, check out shares of Cheesecake Factory and Brinker International. We're talking about 3% moves to the upside today after Raymond James upgraded both stocks to outperform. Why? They say the market is underestimating the comeback for full-service restaurants. For more on that call, you can head over to cnbc.com pro. The exchange is back in a moment. everybody. Let's catch you up on a couple stories that should be on your radar. It's time for Rapid Fire. And here to break down the headlines today, we welcome our own dear Drabosa, along with Casey Newton, the editor of Platformer and a CNBC contributor, and Michael Yoshikami, who is founder and CEO of Destination Wealth Management. Uh, it's great to have you guys all here. we got a lot of IPOs, a lot of crypto, a lot of different things to talk about today, especially this China crackdown. Let's begin here. We're learning more about China's crackdown on its own tech companies. And it's becoming clear these moves, they've been months in the making. Earlier this year, TikTok's parent company, ByteDance, shelved plans for its offshore listing indefinitely. The journal reporting that government officials asked the company to address data security risks. And China, of course, widened its clampdown on overseas listings this weekend by requiring some tech firms now to seek informal approval ahead of going public. Deirdre, the, the article implies that ByteDance maybe knew that they were kind of in a gray area, but had to push ahead with the listing anyway, because uh, to some degree of uh, all the capital it had raised. Right. I think you mean Didi, right? Didi had to push ahead, whereas ByteDance put their IPO on ice for mm -hmm. the time being, which raises just a ton of questions for Didi investors. Why were they telling Beijing one thing and Wall Street another and pushing forward with that IPO, which I remember at the time was pretty incredible how quickly they rushed through that roadshow confused a lot of people. There was no celebration around it. They listed on the CCP's 100th birthday. So there was a lot of questions. And, you know, that report over the weekend was all the more damning for Didi because it said another company, which, yes, is in a better profit and cash situation, could perhaps wait on an IPO. That is ByteDance. That just makes Didi look really bad. But it raises questions, of course, for American investors. How do you trust these companies, which is why we are seeing all the pressure on all the other names as well. And Casey, where does this go for the big Chinese tech giants? I understand that the Communist Party doesn't want anything that kind of undermines their surveillance, if you will, of the Chinese uh, public or lets this information get into hands overseas. But it still hobbles these uh, massive tech companies from at a position of strength. Absolutely. I mean, the situation in China is very chaotic right now. I think it's extremely hard for us American reporters to really crack what's going on over there. But every day there's a new story about a company that is, you know, being uh, under investigation for its data security practices. Mergers are being blocked. IPOs are being blocked. I think that there's an atmosphere of terror, frankly, among the tech giants over in China right now as they try to figure out what is the path forward for them that will let them to continue to build their businesses. But at the moment, it looks like their global prospects are far more limited than they looked even three months ago. And Michael Yoshikami, I, I kind of bring this back to American companies and what investors 
want what the public wants. You know, you have an administration that's very interested in, in pushing forward on antitrust, while at the same time, the way that the Chinese are behaving is creating openings for things like TikTok, which, you know, you could have Instagram reels or someone step up, presumably, into the void. You know, should we, should we focus on kind of seizing that opportunity instead of hobbling our own, you know, big tech competitors? Uh, well, I think that's really the, the, the mood in the world right now is really to try to control the power that technology companies have. The Biden administration announced new rules uh, just here in the last uh, week or so. Uh, you, you know, Kelly, I talk to people in China literally every day. And I used to go to China every six weeks prior to COVID wow. just to see what's happening. So uh, I can tell you what's happening right now is there really is just a real shift um, from um, allowing capitalism to really cracking down and making sure that companies know who's in charge, starting with Jack Ma, who's kind of vanished in a sense um, ever since the uh, issues with Alibaba. So um, I don't think we're going to be able to get away from this to answer your question. Um, we're going to see a crackdown on technology companies. I expect that to continue. Uh, and eventually China companies will understand how the game works. It's so really all about China's government. Michael, then here's my question, because I don't think they can have it both ways. You can either have profitable companies growing, you know, incredibly fast and, you know, giving strong returns to investors, or you can have the Chinese Communist Party maintain its power. But I don't think you can have both. So if they're choosing the latter right now, what would you say to all the people who might be interested in investing? You know, we talked about this last week uh, when we had yeah. um, our friend from AEI on, whose name is escaping, Derek Scissors, when he said, you know, he would invest in China by doing so via maybe the aging population play, but that you have to be careful with a lot of these tech platforms and these areas of the market. Would you agree with that? Uh, well, I, I, first of all, I think you can have it both ways. I think what you're going to see is companies that are going to still be profitable, but they're going to be less profitable. I mean, Tencent, if you look at what WeChat, how that's embedded in the Chinese system, um, they're going to make money. What it is really, I think, Kelly, is about tempering expectations of what growth is going to look like and what unbridled growth is going to look like in expansion. So I think um, you certainly could try to play the Chinese aging market, which really is a demographic play on internal consumption, which is essentially what China is swiveling, uh, uh, switching towards. Uh, the last time I was in uh, uh, Xiamen, which is a huge private equity um, uh, space uh, uh, city in China, that's what all the managing directors were telling me. Essentially, they're trying to move the economy towards internal consumption, which is what Tencent is all about. It's if, you, if you take a taxi uh, in uh, Fuzhou, China, they don't want your money. They give you a, a, a code that they have in a plastic wrapper that they just pass into the back seat of the taxi, and then you scan your WeChat. So uh, your WeChat barcode. So I think that you're going to continue to see profit just investors need to temper their expectations. It's not going to be as euphoric as it was because you're not going to see unbridled growth anymore. Well, this relates directly to our next topic, which is, I guess, Casey and Deirdre, my question is, is there a cause and effect here? So obviously, TikTok is now banning a lot of financial services discussions, crypto especially, Casey. Is this all related back to the issues the parent company is having? Or do you think something else specifically is going on there? You know, my sense with this is this is actually more of an American concern. Uh, TikTok was starting to face a lot of pressure in the United States based on some of the, uh, the the scams and the bad advice that was running rampant on the platform. There are a lot of young people, obviously, who were using TikTok and a lot of creators were offering some sort of, you know, sketchy uh, financial snake oil to them. And so TikTok had to act here or risk being investigated by the FTC. Deirdre, what would you add? 
Um, I would add that I think this is right. We know that China's cracking down on financial services. Look at Ant Group, right? What, $100 billion or more wiped off that valuation and that IPO totally derailed. This is, I think, about the American user, right? Actually, I went down, Kelly, a FinTalk rabbit hole of videos. And there was some really interesting stuff on there. And I will say some really good stuff. There was one user telling kids that they should ask for a custodial account over a PS5 because it will compound and return them more money over time. And some really good videos that speak to that generation that aren't preachy or judgy. The problem, though, is that TikTok algorithm, which is so good, which eventually most likely leads you to that snake oil salesman that Katie, that Casey referred to. Interesting. So they're facing challenges both in China and in the U.S. as all these regulators crack down on the different areas of concern. All right. Speaking of cracking down on crypto, let's talk about Binance for a moment, because the largest crypto, crypto platform in the world has been facing a rising regulatory tide over the past few weeks. Users are now turning against the company. The Wall Street Journal finding that groups of Binance users from all around the world are working with lawyers to recoup massive losses they incurred when it froze on May 19th. That was the day Bitcoin crashed almost below $30,000. And according to Gizmodo, the FTC has found 760 complaints filed against the platform since last June. So, Casey, what's the future of Binance at this point? You know, who we've talked about Coindesk and some of the others that are now obviously um, on the scene in a big way. Coinbase, I'm sorry. But does this create a massive market opportunity? Because there's no way some of these users are going to be recouped for these losses, especially trading with futures and, and highly leveraged and all the rest of it. That's right. I mean, as I've been reading these stories, the main thought that I have is if you're going to do uh, like risky options tradings on crypto, do it with a company that has a headquarters, right? Like part of the problem here is that Binance, I guess, tip, like technically isn't located anywhere. So users can't even figure out who they're supposed to sue. Um, yes, I do think that there is a, an opportunity here for a crypto trader to come along with a, a bit more traditional uh, approach to, you know, taxes and compliance and customer service. Michael? Yeah, yeah I, I, I personally would stay away from anything um, that looks anything like uh, companies that are trading in crypto that don't have transparency. As was just mentioned, not having a headquarters does seem to be a bit, a bit problematic. Um, this whole space is all speculation at this point, right? It's really basically .com. So we'll see how it shakes out. But I would certainly not, as a prudent investor, and certainly my firm as a fiduciary, would not be uh, dancing in this area. I think there's just way too much risk. A quick final word, Deirdre. My IFB just went out. It's Deirdre. We'll come back to her in one second. We'll finish by ending on the summer grilling season, everybody. It's in full swing, and grill manufacturers Traeger and Weber are each cooking up IPOs right now. Weber made its announcement today. Their ticker will be WEBR. They are reportedly seeking a valuation between 4 and $6 billion. This was after Traeger Grills announced its plans for a public debut last week. TGPX Holdings wants to trade under the ticker Cook on the New York Stock Exchange and raise about $100 million through the offering. Casey, I, I guess this is their moment. This is, they, they're, they're all seizing it. Yeah, I mean, what better time to IPO than at the height of summer grilling season? You know, I, they may have even missed their window. How did they not get this thing out the door before the 4th of July? Agreed, agreed. Deirdre? <laughs> I'm not much of a griller, so I, I don't have a ton to add on this topic, but I have been watching shares of Yeti, right? This whole outdoor play mm -hmm. that people are going to get out, grill more, go camping more. So I suppose that makes sense. But $6 billion, I don't know, someone's going to tell me if that's uh, <laughs> an overprice or underprice for a grill maker. But Michael Yoshikami, do they have a future in the Chinese market? 
<laughs> I don't know how the Chinese are going to really take to grilling. I will tell you, I know someone in private equity that was pitched Yeti uh, as an investment. And they basically said, and I don't know how many years ago this was, they said, are you kidding me? Someone who makes ice chests, is there any kind of valuation in this thing? And look what's happened. So I wouldn't put it past uh, grilling companies to have an exciting summer as well. Yeah, as I sip out of my Yeti, uh, whatever tumbler thing that it's called. The I tried to get a cooler once. It was like two hundred and eighty dollars. I mean, I, was, I, I did not walk now out. Now you know it. why the stock is. I do. It's brilliant. It's like uh, Lily Pulitzer, right? If people are going to pay up for it, it's a brilliant business. Uh, guys, thank you all today. Really appreciate the depth of knowledge talking through a lot of these headlines. Deirdre Bosa, Casey Newton, and Michael Yoshikami. Well, it's back. After a one-year pandemic hiatus, CNBC is again rating America's top states for business. Scott Cohn is in this year's winning state, and he's about to bring us another clue. Scott? The business is just flowing into this state, Kelly. Imagine that. We go to great lengths to uh, measure the states, all 50 states, for competitiveness. We will tell you about how our methodology has changed this year in this watershed year. And we'll also have another one of our diabolical hints when the exchange continues. As the U.S. economy comes back to life, the battle between the states for business and jobs is heating up. Which states are best positioned to win in this new world? CNBC's annual America's Top States for Business study is back to tell us. We've been rating the states since 2007 based on 10 categories of competitiveness for a total of 2,500 points. And this year, we've adapted that formula to a vastly different world. Scott Cohn tells us how it works. We start by learning what the states are talking about, their pitches to business. Light taxation, uh, good workforce training, and, and, a, and a big welcome mat for, for new residents. The more something gets pitched, the more weight it carries. This year, with the economy still rebuilding, they're pushing low taxes and incentives, making cost of doing business our most important category, followed closely by infrastructure. Not just roads and bridges anymore, we look at sustainability, broadband, and reliability of the power grid. Millions in Texas still left in the cold and dark this evening from a failing power grid. We've broadened our measure of quality of life, a new category, life, health, and inclusion, looking more closely at health care, including COVID vaccination rates, and inclusiveness, including voting rights. We look at workforce, availability, and diversity, the economy, including state finances, business friendliness, regulations and red tape, access to capital, especially important now, technology and innovation, education, and cost of living. We actually look at uh, 85 metrics in this year's study. That's the most that we've ever done. We wanted to take extra care to do it right this year because it is such a pivotal year. Uh, you can read more about our study at topstates.cnbc.com. Here I am in America's top state for business, which we will reveal tomorrow. And here's another patented diabolical uh, top states hint. It is talking turkey. Talking, talking turkey. turkey. Remember, so these hints are, remember these hints are diabolical. Understood. I want all of our uh, satellite listeners, Scott, to know that you are telling me all of this while you're paddling a kayak right now. So they can just let that mental image sink in. Uh, listen, the work from home chart, I mean, I know you're alluding to this in so many different ways, but to me, if I had to pick an emblematic state, it would have to be one of the big winners for, to, you know, in the work from home era. I've written about Tennessee. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, uh, the, the work from home era, as I, as I get away from you here, uh, and I'll try and talk about this as I, as I uh, paddle in a kayak, but the work from home era changed things, but it's interesting that in a lot of ways it didn't. Uh, you know, you have companies that are, are much more attuned to where their workers want to be, and so that really just sort of intensifies the battle that we've been looking at for all these years since 2007. Uh, so so it's, uh, it's really been a fascinating, fascinating year. We look forward to revealing the whole study tomorrow. I totally agree. And good luck getting back to shore, Scott, wherever that is the current carries them away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, keep zooming out. I want to see how far away you are. He's pretty downriver. Uh, the camera must be on shore, though. All right, we'll let you guys go. Scott Cohen, as he said, the big reveal is tomorrow morning on Squawk Box. Still ahead here on the exchange, Bitcoin is falling again today. It's down to about 33,000, changed down 2.5%. But it's got some dramatic gains over the past year still. So if you're an investor and you have those gains that you're sitting on and you want to minimize your capital gains tax, we have seven ways to do that next. Welcome back. Despite Bitcoin's volatility, it's still up more than 15% this year. And as some investors take profits, they're staring down some pretty big tax bills. But one Russian expat has a way around that. CNBC.com tech reporter Mackenzie Sigalos is here with that story. Hi, Mackenzie. Hey, Kelly. So Plan B Passport is a company that helps clients obtain a second passport and their pick of seven mostly tropical tax haven states, all of which are exempt from capital gains taxes on their crypto holdings. Now, in most of these destinations, it's a citizenship by investment program, which essentially just means that an individual makes a donation into the sustainable growth fund of the country in exchange for a passport. And that legal residency status is what lets people geographically shuffle their crypto holdings around in order to avoid paying taxes. Now, the company's founder, Katie Ananina, says that clients typically make a $100,000 to $150,000 donation. On top of that, they pay some due diligence fees, government fees, and then $20,000 for her legal fees. All in, she says the average check for customers ranges from $130,000 to $180,000. And as for the core clientele, I'm told that most customers are from the U.S., the U.K., Australia, and Canada. Do they have to give up their U.S. citizenship to do this? Right. So in the United States, the IRS treats virtual currency like Bitcoin as property, and that means that it's taxed in a manner similar to stocks or real property. And so if a taxpayer is a U.S. citizen or even just has a green card, the taxpayer owes U.S. tax on any crypto gains they have, no matter where the crypto or the taxpayer is located. And I actually spoke to one U.S. citizen who's in the process of applying for a second passport in St. Kitts. And he's seriously considering renouncing his U.S. citizenship specifically so that he won't face capital gains taxes. I think for everyone else you're saying, all right, maybe capital gains tax aren't so bad. Uh, pretty fascinating detail. Mackenzie, thank you. Mackenzie Sigalos. That does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. 
Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. 